Erev good evening. Welcome to our Thursday night Parashat Shavua class. This Shabbat, we are going to read Parashat Nitzavim Vayelech, a double parasha. And Bezrat Hashem, hopefully we can walk out of here tonight with a new profound lesson on life. I saw a beautiful idea that I want to expand upon, written in the name of Rav Yaakov Weinberg who Zecher Tzadik Libracha, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of Ner Israel, Baltimore. At the end of Parashat Vayelech, sadly, Moshe Rabenu, at the end of his life, is preparing to leave. He's preparing to leave the world. And he declares that he's not going to be leading the Jewish people into the land of Israel. His lifetime wish and goal, no question. So he calls over Yehoshua, and he instructs him what to do, when to do it, how to do it, to take over for him. Because after he's gone, it's all up to him. And he strengthens him with inspiring words, says the Torah. There was no sense of bitterness displayed by Moshe, despite the fact that he must have been envious of Yoshua's role taking over. Had Moshe not sinned, in Parashat Chukat, with the rock, uh, he, not Yoshua, would have been the one fulfilling the dream to enter Eretz Israel, the promised land, as the leader of the Jewish people. But in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu gave Yoshua leadership advice with a good eye, with an ayin tova, with even more enthusiasm than he had been commanded to give. Kodesh Baruch Hu said, Somech Allah with one hand, and he was Somech on him with two hands. As Rashi explains, Moshe teaches us much in the area of not engaging in damaging rivalries and competition, as did something that took place in the year 2002. 2002. And what I'm referring to is the All-Star Game of Major League Baseball. You don't have to be a baseball fan, you don't have to know much of baseball, to understand what I'm about to say. But maybe this memory rings a bell if you do follow baseball. You know, one thing about sports is I really don't understand how games can end in a tie. Now, how can you end a tie? Isn't the whole point of a game or a sport to win, to beat your opponent? How could the players and fans tolerate when a team is tied? Just last night, actually... In baseball, a team won 29-0. 29 to nothing. Incredible score. The game loses its meaning when it ends in a tie. And as baseball fan or baseball fans will tell you that they're proud of the sport because it could never end in a tie. In fact, it's the only sport that could actually theoretically continue forever. Extra, extra, extra innings. No time limit. Winning is all that counts, no matter how long it takes. And that was baseball until the summer of 2002. And in the summer 2002, after September 11th, which is actually the anniversary is tomorrow, uh, America went to war. And that, were, that was the headlines day in and day out for quite a few years after September 2001. And therefore, in the summer of 2002... The headlines were still war, but 
as if it was significant like the war, the fact that the Major League Baseball All-Star Game ended in a tie was considered a headline. And by the time this game ended, the sport had another record, but one that it wanted to forget. And the fans were not happy. They booed. They threw bottles. The game was tied 7-7 after 11 innings on a Tuesday night. Why? Because both teams ran out of pitchers. And the commissioner got up to speak and he apologized to all the fans in attendance. This is a regrettable situation. I quote him. Something that was unexpected for him. Something he didn't see coming. Fans were screaming that they were ripped off. This is terrible. All the fans at Miller Park where it took place were screaming, let them play, refund, refund. They even threw bottles, glass bottles onto the field to protest the decision, which was actually agreed upon by the both teams. So how did the teams run out of pitchers? Well, the policy of the managers who manage the baseball teams is to make sure that every player on the All-Star Game roster, 30, is used during the nine-inning contest. And if the game is tied and extra innings are needed, what happens is that the teams quickly run out of pitchers who can't throw for too many innings. Why? Because nobody wants to risk injury. No one wants to overwork them, especially in an All-Star Game, which doesn't count in the standings. So therefore, to the managers and to the players, they actually made the right decision. Now, the fans weren't expecting that ending because there's no ties in baseball. But they have to understand. They know they want to see a great game. But there were no guys ready to pitch. There were no, nobody left in the bullpen. It's a friendly game, one of the uh, players said in response to all the angry fans. In truth, that's really how every game or sport should be viewed. And when we think about it, competition isn't so healthy for one's character. Just think about it for one moment. If I can only succeed by putting you down, doesn't that make me wish for you to fail more than drive me to succeed? That's what that means. So how do sports leagues even work? Every team begins the season thinking and hoping that they're going to win a championship. But everyone knows deep down inside that only one team is going to walk out of there smiling and cheering and, and celebrating in the end, wearing the crown. Every other team is going to look back at the season and say, we failed. Why? Because we created a society which preaches that if you're not the best, then you're not worth much. No one really believes the old sports saying of it's not whether you win or lose, it's, whether, it's how you play the game. No one actually believes that. What really people believe is winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. That's what people believe in. So therefore, the all-star managers of that baseball game, they wanted to allow every player in the game. They don't necessarily play the best players. What could be wrong with that? They should do this more often, in fact if what we're preaching is right, it would only increase the quality of, so, of society's character. I read by Rav Barrow Wine, a big tzaddik in this generation, and he writes very profoundly about the idea of competition. How competition is something that is 
accepted in our society, whether it's in the financial district, businesses, sports, government, arts and sciences, competition is the fuel for the engine that drives our society forward. And without competition, we would be at the mercy of a controlled society that would stifle efficiency and progress and hinder us from improving. In fact, the Gemara actually speaks about competition and writes that in an educational and scholarly form, in matters of Torah and again, learning, competition among scholars actually increases wisdom and knowledge. Because we're matching each other. We're trying to see who can come up with a new chidush, with a new novelty. But like all positive attributes, competition has to have its limits. Because competition that is unrestrained, that is vicious, becomes immoral. It's wrong. It's counterproductive to the society. In Parashat Shoftim, which we read just a few weeks ago, the parasha introduces a mitzvah and warns us against the idea of hasagat gevul. Hasagat gevul is really unfair and immoral competition. Hasagat gevul literally means overstepping your boundaries or illegally encroaching on your neighbor's border. And just like it's obviously wrong to move your fence even one centimeter over your property line to someone else's property, so too it's wrong to engage in unfair competitive practices in order to injure someone's business, in order to benefit your own business enterprise. And as naive as this appears at, at first glance, there is some sense behind this Torah policy, if you think about it. The Torah is interested in creating a fair and harmonious, compassionate way of living. And unfair practices through competition, when practiced regularly, openly, and without any shame, then that prevents success in society. It prevents the achievement of such a society. The Eben Ezra, who comments on that mitzvah, uh, actually says that unfair practices such as this can lead to quarrels, can lead to violence, and even lead to murder. It's almost that he prophesied what was to take place in the 18th, 19th, and, tw uh, 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 and maybe even tw uh, 20th century, not so much, but the 18th and 19th century for sure, where socialism and communism and other state-controlled economies were taking control of, of parts of the world. And we saw this. I, I didn't see it personally, but people witnessed this. How there was no life, there was no society, people couldn't live. Unfair competition borns this horrible, unfair state controlled, repressive tyranny, monopoly. And things go downhill from there. And the Torah frowns on such a society. It frowns on when people do everything they can and all their will to put down their neighbor. You know, negative advertisements, negative comments on people's products or, or services, whether commercial services or government, governmental services, makes no difference. It's not allowed. Besides being a fact uh, that is that is Lashon Hara, it's a form of evil speech. 
So therefore, we as 21st century consumers, this is hard to hear because everything we we see on television and we hear on the radio, the people we speak to, the salespeople, you speak to an internet provider, they'll trash the other internet provider. You speak to the one that they trash, they'll trash the first guy. Back and forth and back and forth, why that person isn't good. And for us, it's very difficult to hear this. So we're not used to the type of society that the Torah is promoting. But the Jews and the Torah understanding of life, we have to try to swim against the current. We have to try to move not in that direction that we are facing what we're regular to and what we see around us. The prohibition against Hasagat Gvul, encroaching the border, that affects many areas of life. And following this mitzvah guarantees the sanctity of privacy. It ensures the holiness of confidentiality and the civility of being fair, civil, trustworthy, business place, marketplace, sales, trade, so on and so forth. There is an unfair competition in families and institutions for time and attention, wealth, opportunity, even for love and caring. Even within the family circle, from the beginning of life, we have sibling rivalries. Destructive competition is planted, God forbid. And a wise parent is able to see this, cognizant of this, uh, this fact, and will do whatever they can to prevent sibling rivalries. Those are the destructive aspects of competition, and they need to be controlled, they need to be minimized. Sibling rivalries go way back from the time of the creation of the earth, from Adam Arishon. Just look at Sefer Bereshit and what you see. You have Cain and Hevel. You have Avraham and his nephew Lot. You have Yitzchak and Ishmael. You have Yaakov and Isav. You have Yosef and his brothers. It's as if the Torah just wished to inform and impress upon us the true nature of human beings. Maybe that's what the Torah meant, that the human being is Yetzerami Neurav. The nature of the human being is bad from the onset because we have this within us to create rivalries, to create competition. We are by nature competitive creatures. The competition begins at home and with those who are closest to us. We shouldn't think of our children as angelic, but rather deal with their true nature. Recognize that we all have pitfalls and step in and make people work together because each child is different. Even identical twins are not the same. And because of this fact, competitive nature is built. It's in our blood. It's in our bloodstream. It's a task of, the, of, of educators. It's a task of parents who are educating in the home to channel this competitiveness into positive behavior and create goals. And this is what the rabbis meant by their statement that competitiveness between chachamim, between scholars and wise men, that's the method for increasing wisdom and understanding generally. Without competitiveness in the world of learning, in the scholarly world, there can be very little creativity, very little advancement in all forms of life, technology, healthcare, finance, politics. The task is to direct the competition towards positive aims and to limit it so that it doesn't descend, God forbid, like the Ebenezer said, into violence and tyranny. 
And again, Rabbi Wine, and I quote him, he says that part of the problem with Isav, with uh, against his brother Yaakov, was that not so much of his competitiveness nature, but rather his insecurity. He always feels that his younger brother was tugging at his heel, that he was right there preventing him from achieving greatness. And he felt, therefore, he had to do something about it. So he scorns his birthright because he feels that fulfilling its demands, it's going to inhibit him. So therefore, yalla, get rid of it. He feels that only being different than Yaakov, that's how he's going to achieve respect. And all of his plans crumble. He cries out in anguish to his father that he wants the blessings that Yaakov received. He realizes that only those blessings that Yaakov has, which he has to share, well, which he has to share with Yaakov, can his destiny f- truly be fulfilled? And that's what Yaakov informs him. And their last meeting, eventually Yaakov will come to the mountain of Esav, and then Esav will be redeemed by his acceptance of Yaakov. That's going to happen in the end of days, and of the moral values and tradition of his family. And throughout the books of Tanakh we find this constant struggle of insecurity versus acceptance and competitiveness versus conformity. And we are uncomfortable when we see people who are different than we are. But the only way to achieve personal greatness, Rabotai, is by realizing that our own inner security need not be weakened by the competitiveness with others. That's not how we should feel. We live in an environment that is scary. We live in an environment that motivates only through competition. Even our schools have student comparison charts on the bulletin board. They have spelling bees to determine who knows the spelling best, who knows the math best, who knows the science best. The focus has shifted from who knows things well to who knows things best. The Torah has a term for this, and it's not very complimentary. The term is mitkabed bekalon havero, gaining respect through another's disgrace. Such conduct, such behavior, done continuously throughout one's life, that causes, God forbid, says the Rambam, to lose his share in Olam Abba, to be mitkabed bekalon havero. If all I have to do to be successful is to beat you, it's a whole lot easier to cause you to do worse than me rather than to get myself do better than you. And what's the result? What, what, what comes out of this? Simple. Students will not push themselves to be better. They will not push themselves towards their maximum ability. They will not set their goals higher to reach their personal maximum if all they have to do to flourish is defeat someone else. And what happens to the weaker students? What, happen, what happens to those who know that they can't actually win the competition? What is their drive to do best? Does it really make sense to reward the brightest students more for easily winning than the slower ones who are really doing their best? We always say the guy who doesn't study and gets 100 versus the person that sweats nightly and only scores 60s or 70s. 
As a teacher, it's a very easy decision. The one who sweats. Watch kids when they play sports. Do they play for exercise and for the development of their skills? Or do they play in order to win? Have you seen the pure, good-natured kids all of a sudden when they get onto the field? What happens? It's like they transform into this new being, screaming tigers on the soccer pitch, on the basketball court, on the baseball field, on the ice hockey rink. He was safe. He was out. It went in. It didn't go in. He, I was fouled, screaming at each other. And when kids choose upsides to choose teams we all were there we were all kids we all played recess we all uh, made our own teams do they even try to make the teams equal so that there is good competition or do they seek to get the best players on their team in order to win the contest are they not guilty of malbin of humiliating their friend in public which also makes someone god forbid lose his share in Olam Abba, what do you think that child is thinking about when he's not chosen to play? Or when he is last? And he's always going to be last because he doesn't have the skills or because he isn't athletic enough. So he's chosen last or second last. How does that last kid feel when nobody wants him? Yes, we should be competitive, but only with ourselves. If I ran the mile in eight minutes last week, I'm going to try to run it in seven and a half today. If I got a 90 on my last test, let me attempt to get a 95 on this test. Winning does not have to mean defeating someone else. It can be accomplished by struggling against ourselves, trying to improve our personal past performance. And that's the lesson of that all-star game. That all-star game of baseball, it ended in a tie. Yes. And baseball fans will never forget that. And many were upset. But if you stop and you contemplate what actually took place on that night in 2002, you would be proud of the sport. You'd be proud of baseball. The league took a break from the value of competition because they wanted to let everyone get in the game and have a good, friendly time. And in doing so, they reminded the world that competition and winning are not what is important. Treating all people with respect should be the overriding value. Not succeeding at someone else's expense, that's what's significance. And therefore, sports could teach you good character. We started with Moshe Rabenu and his willingness to teach Yoshua, his successor, everything that he knows. You know what that means? You know that Moshe Rabenu prayed 515 times to get into Eretz Israel, Vaet Hanan, the Gematria 515. We're not talking about the prayer of each one of us here living in the year 2020, where our minds are not nearly to have the proper concentration when we pray. We're talking about Tefilot of Moshe Rabenu, 515 of them, all so that he could be a berana ve'ere all so that he could cross that Jordan River and see Eretz Israel. This was his lifelong dream, was to be there. 
to be buried there, to see what that land is all about, all the promises that he heard for years and years and years, what he went through to get to that point. And now he was told he couldn't go because of one small sin. One small sin. For Moshe, it was a big one, but it was one small sin. And he accepted it. He accepted it, but you cannot tell me that it didn't hurt. You cannot tell me that it that when he sees Yahshua taking the reins, that he this sense of competition didn't want to just totally take over. But somehow he found it inside of him to push aside that. Somehow he said he found the 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 strength inside of him to say, Yahshua, you are the next leader. You are the you are the moon. And while I'm the sun, and yes, I am your teacher, and you were my servant for all these many years, there's no question, but you are going to take this nation in. And I am going to do whatever I can to ensure that you are properly prepared with an ayin tova, with inspiring words, with words that make a person feel good. And in fact, the Torah tells us that Yeshua was worried why did, why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to give him these inspiring words? What was the purpose of it? The fact that Yahshua was scared. He was scared for his life. And he said that if Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader, the greatest rabbi of all time, suffered and he couldn't get into Israel and he couldn't succeed because of what happened, because of the, the difficulties of the nation, the Am Kishoref of Bnei Israel, he says, what am I going to do? I don't stand a chance. You expect me to go into this land? Facing enemies, constant battling, there's no way. So God had to tell Moshe Rabenu, you gotta go talk to Yahshua. Moshe did a Belib Shalim without competition. And what happened as a result? Yahshua became again one of the greatest leaders. He took them into Israel and create single-handedly created a society of success. We forget that about Yahshua. We think of Yahshua as just a guy who came into Israel and just started killing all the nations in order to conquer the land. That is definitely true. But it's not just, I wipe out and I drive out this nation out of here and now go fend for yourselves. Yahshua was in charge to create stability in the land, to set up a financial system, to set up businesses, to teach about dealing with one another. Things that they weren't used to in the desert. And they certainly weren't used to in Egypt. So Yahshua created the society, the original society of Eretz Israel, A society based on truth, based on fairness, based on relationships. And that was learned from Moshe Rabbeinu. That was learned from the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have an ounce of jealousy within him. And he was willing to teach everything that he had over him. It's a tremendous lesson. It's a beautiful idea, something that we need to think about. We don't normally look at sports that way. We're normally ready to, to pounce on our friends who are cheering for the other team because for us it's all about winning. It's all about coming on top. Maybe we should just take a step back and just say, you know what? Maybe, maybe the game could end in a tie. Maybe we could just use all our resources the best we can and seek to improve ourselves. As long as we can improve ourselves then we've succeeded. We've succeeded. That is the lesson from this week's parasha, one of many. Bezrat Hashem, we should all focus on this 
idea that uh, this concept that we face every single day in our lives at work, at school, in our social circles, wherever we are, the idea of competition constantly faces us. Let's work on ourselves. Let's work to improve ourselves. Not care so much about what happens there. Again, that line is so, so crucial. If I can only succeed by putting you down, doesn't that make me wish for you to fail more than drive me to succeed? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we have a lot to work on. Bezrat Hashem, we shall work on this. And we come to work on ourselves more than anything. And we'll be to the coming of Mashiach. Amen. Have a wonderful night, everybody.